This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When police find someone who's mentally ill and needs help, their next stop is often the emergency room. Sometimes the person lands in jail. But across Colorado, there's a new alternative, away from the bright lights of an ER and the confined space of a cell. Reporter Leah Todd writes about Colorado's crisis living rooms as part of a collaboration with High Country News, the Pueblo Chieftain, and media outlets in New Mexico. Leah, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nathan. So your reporting focused on Alamosa, Colorado, and the San Luis Valley. Why is the crisis living room there important? What need does it fill? So as, as you said in the intro, often people with uh, mental illness who are experiencing a moment of crisis end up in the emergency room, and that leaves emergency rooms overcrowded um, while wait lines are already long. Uh, nationally, there are millions of visits each year to emergency rooms by people who have mental health um, Uh, reasons, you know, chest pains that turn out to be an anxiety attack, or they're experiencing some part of a psychotic episode or depression. And and this person comes in, they're medically examined, um, they're sometimes strapped to a bed, and and a police officer waits outside um, a locked door until, you know, a psychologist or another mental health clinician can get there. And that is not only an expensive visit for that ER, but it's also stressful to that person. And Alamosa was experiencing this with a couple hundred people every year in the emergency room there coming in with these sorts of complaints. And this takes up valuable time and space away from other patients who really need emergency medical care. Um, and, And people will tell you that you know, providers will tell you, people experiencing a mental health crisis will tell you that oftentimes they don't actually need to be in the emergency room. These people would uh, benefit just as much from having a counselor to talk to, a safe space to work through their issues. And and that's really the need that this particular crisis living room is trying to, trying to fill. And Robert Jackson, the uh, sheriff in Alamosa County, you spoke to him, he called ERs kind of a catch-all for when police came across people who are mentally ill. So this center that you reported on actually opened in 2014, but I understand it recently moved into a new space, which means they can treat a lot more people. What's it like when you walk into this crisis living room? The overwhelming thing that you will notice when you walk in is that it's very calm. Hmm. It's quiet. There are not a lot of people, aren't a lot of doctors, there aren't any doctors really walking around the space. Um, It's open. The rooms are very big. They're tall ceilings. There are couches all throughout the facility and no harsh lights, no beeping medical machines, um, no one asking you to fill out paperwork the first minute you set foot in the room. Um, You're greeted by someone who's either a case manager, a mental health clinician, or some type of addictions counselor who will just start talking and ask you what you need. And there are small rooms um, around the the facility that uh, are all created for a variety of experiences. So there's a therapy room where you can go and sit down one-on-one with a counselor if you feel like you need to talk to someone. There's a, a small room that is kept quite dark with a single recliner. Hmm. Um, so a person can walk into the room and just lay down. There can be you know, music playing. There are soft, twinkling lights in the room. Uh, so it's all designed to create a calming experience 
for a person experiencing a mental health crisis. The idea is that whatever you walk in the door with, that this place would have something to help soothe you, whether that's anxiety that you're feeling or depression or some sort of a bipolar episode. So it's, it's a, a distinctly non-medical environment. And, um, and that's, that's the, big, the big difference. And there are similar facilities now in Denver, Colorado Springs, Fort Collins, Pueblo, and Grand Junction. And besides Alamosa, these are actually open 24 hours a day and are able to serve anyone on, on a really a walk-in basis. Um, and according to Barbara Cleave, uh, she says that Aspen Point, which coordinates the state funding for these mental health centers, and that's kind of part of the story here, right? That these centers have come online since 2013 when the governor made money available for them. Isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. So this particular center in Alamosa was inspired by uh, Governor Hickenlooper's uh, push for mental health services after the Aurora shooting. Um, funding became available in the summer of 2014, and this particular crisis living room opened in late 2014, November, December. And and the thinking was that the folks in Alamosa who were working in behavioral health knew they needed a different way to respond to people who are experiencing mental health crisis and wanted to catch people sooner before an anxiety, you know, feelings of anxiety turned into an anxiety attack or before angry feelings turned into a full-blown dispute. They wanted to catch people earlier and provide them not only a safe space to work through those feelings, but also give them tools to manage their stress on their own so that uh, uh, larger mental health um, crises don't, don't happen, you know, so that they're, they're prevented. And Cleve told us the center in Colorado Springs has served about 7,000 clients in the year and a half since it opened. And like we said, you've reported mostly on the one in Alamosa. It's called the Mia Esperanza Wellness Center. It sounds like you think it's been pretty effective. Well, it's hard to put a finger on exactly how effective these crisis living rooms are. I mean, no one has studied nationally uh, whether someone experiencing a mental health crisis going into an ER and coming out, you know, a couple hours or a couple of days later, no one studied that experience as opposed to someone with the similar crisis walking into one of these living rooms and being treated. So no one has compared the efficacy of those two uh, modes of treatment. And, in Alamosa, the number of complaints to that town's emergency room for mental health-related issues has actually increased over mm-hmm. the time um, that Mi Esperanza has been in operation. So it's hard to say, it's hard to put you know, hard data behind the efficacy of these places, but it's the, the crisis living room in, in Alamosa is seeing an increasing number of clients. It's on a smaller scale than the one in Colorado Springs, um, they're seeing about 30 clients a month at this point. Um, but the people who are using the facility are coming back. There are repeat customers. Um, there are people who who are experiencing this as a, a place that keeps them out of the emergency room. Um, I met a man named Steve Ledwin, who is a, a former UPS worker who lives with anxiety and um, a schizoaffective disorder and several other mental health conditions who has been to the ER dozens of times in his life for, and he'll be the first to tell you, not always ex- emergency medical reasons. He's been there um, just to get off his feet for a few hours. And he found the crisis living room in Alamosa a couple of months ago and hasn't been back to the ER since. 
Um, he goes to this place just to calm down, to talk through his anxious feelings with a counselor. Um, oftentimes he just puts on some music, some Pearl Jam or Led Zeppelin, and that's enough to calm him down in this, this safe environment. So, you know, on a big scale, it's hard to put numbers behind how effective uh, these crisis living rooms are. But when you look at the people who are using them, I think that's where the efficacy um, is, is clear. And so what about uh, uh, people with, with uh, you know, addicts or struggling with drug use? Uh, you know, the, the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado have struggled with the opioid epidemic. Is there a place for them in these centers? Yeah, there's not much that these centers can do um, for a person who is actively using, so for a person who is intoxicated or for a person who is high. It wasn't created for that particular need. Now, I think the the living room staff in Alamosa would tell you that where they can be effective is on the prevention side. So talking through, you know, feelings of craving or talking through maybe what is um, creating the, the addiction in the first place that service is available at the crisis living room. So there are addictions counselors who work there full time, who are able to to talk through um, talk through the addiction with with addicts who who find the place. But there's you know there's only so much the crisis living rooms can do for people who are actively high or actively going through withdrawal. Um, there there was this one clinician told me a story of a man that the Alamosa cops dropped off at this facility in Alamosa a few weeks ago. He was um, he was high. He was moving around in strange ways, uh, not responding really to communication. He was refusing medical treatment, and he really wasn't a threat to himself. He wasn't a threat to other people, so there was no reason to take him to jail. So the police brought him to Mi Esperanza, and the staff sat down with him, tried to communicate, tried to talk. The man wasn't really responding, so they all just sat there for a while. And eventually the man decided he wanted to leave, and and he did. And there was really nothing else that the staff at that particular place could have done. Um, So I think that... In, in terms of uh, withdrawal intervention or dealing with people who are actively high or actively intoxicated, this isn't really the right space. But on the prevention side is, I think, where, where these places could be helpful. Leah, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Nathan. Leah Todd is a reporter based in Taos, and she's part of a collaboration with several news outlets in Colorado and New Mexico led by High Country News and a nonprofit called the Solutions Journalism Network and reports on threats to the sustainability of rural communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been said that history is written by the victors, but History Colorado wants to tell a fuller version of the state's story, and the staff wants your help. They've launched a diversity heritage project to capture more nuggets from Colorado's American Indian, Latino, and LGBTQ population, among others. Astrid Liverman is with the state's Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This started after your office reviewed the state's National Register of Historic Places. Uh, what struck you about what was and what wasn't on this list? Well, this is also part of the 50th anniversary of the National Register of Historic Places, which was authorized in 1966. And it's meant to be a list that is representative of the history of the entire country. And we were really noticing that a lot of stories are not represented. Hmm. So we wanted to proactively address that. So the project seeks, quote, diverse heritage. What, what qualifies as that? 
Well, we did an outreach program in developing the statewide preservation plan, and we talked to communities across the state. Um, We held listening sessions in about 12 different cities, and we asked them what types of resources they felt weren't being represented in their communities, and that's how we arrived at this list. And the list that we actually presented is, is not comprehensive. There are more resources that we're interested in researching as well. And you've already received a number of uh, these diverse histories. Um, I want to hear about some of them, Uh, starting with Colorado's African-American community. Tell me about the Macedonia Baptist Church in Denver and why that property has historical significance. Sure. Um, This is actually a property that I, you know, at the beginning, I just knocked on their door and said, you know, you're a really significant property. Are you interested in the National Register? Um, This is a mid-century modern church that was built in 1954 for actually a different congregation that subsequently left urban Denver Mm. in the so-called white flight um, of, you know, suburban exodus. Um, And then in 1963, a prominent African-American congregation moved to this church. And then in January 1964, um, the pastor of the church was actually personal friends with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he came to speak there in January of 1964. And historically, Macedonia Baptist Church has hosted civil rights luminaries from across the country from then to present ongoing. And you've also heard about some historic African-American residences in Boulder as as well. What stands out about them? Um, actually, um, the city of Boulder, which is a certified local government, has listed some of these locally as landmarks and as structures of merit. Uh, there was a small community um, called the Little Rectangle in Boulder, which hosted about 200 uh, African-American individuals beginning in about 1870. Uh, And the heyday was around uh, 1920, but ongoing through 1950. Um, And the center of the African-American community in Boulder was really based in the little rectangle. And a lot of those smaller houses are still extant today and can tell the stories of those families. And so you're going all around the state looking for these these, these, uh, pockets of diversity in our history. Well, what we're really trying to do is slowly begin to outreach to different community organizations and ask them what places are significant to their communities. We are pinning through a history pin project that's available online, um, properties that we're aware of, that we have become aware of uh, traveling across the state. But we really want to tell the stories of the communities themselves. So I want to talk about another collection uh, around the urban American Indian heritage. Uh, Tell me about one urban American Indian property you've learned about since you've started this project. Sure. And some of these properties are actually properties that are listed on the National Register already, Mm -hmm. but they don't have layers of significance reflected in the nomination. So, for instance, there's a church called the Danish Evangelical Bethany Lutheran Church, which is from 1912. It's in the Baker neighborhood, and that has been listed on the National Register since 1989. But that church is actually the home of the Four Winds American Survival Project since 1989, which is a very important urban American Indian community gathering point, uh, which host a number of programs and community events. I'd love to get to this story. I find it really fascinating. You've you've collected stories tied to the state's Asian American communities as well. Uh, And there's one about Chinese revolutionary uh, Sun Yat-sen. I think I'm saying that correctly. Is it true that he once stayed at the Brown Palace? Right. Uh, So in October of 1911, he was staying at the Brown Palace. He was in this country doing a fundraising tour, and he received news at the Brown Palace that the revolution was occurring and the declaration of the republic. And he immediately left to go back to China. Um, where he arrived on Christmas Day in Shanghai, and he was subsequently named the provisional president 
on January 1st in 1912. And, and was that that found through crowdsourcing, I guess, is what I'm trying to, to so figure out there? Actually, yes. We outreached to the Colorado Chinese News Organization, and they shared with us information on this property and made us aware that actually it's still a site that Chinese tourists still routinely visit um, as a site of historic significance to them. So what other communities are you still hoping to to hear from with this project? Well, like I said, we're, we want to have an individual and personal connection. So we're really, you know, calling different organizations one by one. Um, we have outreached uh, to the LGBTQ community through the center, through the Gill Foundation, through some community leaders who were active in the 1970s through One Colorado, um, and just beginning those conversations one by one. And you say a big goal of this project is to have these communities' histories heard. How do you achieve that uh, in a full form that, that, that can be you know living on forever, in a sense? Well, so we're beginning the project through just pinning, so yeah. as a placeholder. And then we wanted to share with those communities the possibilities that exist through historic preservation to recognize their communities, to celebrate those communities. And if they are interested in nominating properties to the National Registers, to make them aware of that process. Um, and that in turn, the National Register has a number of incentives um, to help them save or preserve or protect those places. And I understand you amended some rules to allow for more of these stories to be represented on the register, correct? Well, so we didn't amend any rules, but we are um, willing to explore. We would hope to explore amending National Register nominations for properties that are already listed, but that layer of significance to some of these communities is not actually represented yet. So is there a lot of red tape to get these places onto a register? Um, it's a significant process. It okay. does take some time, usually at least about six months. Um, but we we want to make those communities aware that we are ready and willing to help them not only write those nominations, but to you know, steward them through that process. How can you know that telling these stories will have some kind of impact? Is there some sort of a you know point in time? We're like, oh, okay, we've done it. We, we've made an impact in, in, in diversifying this history. Sure. Well, I guess one great example is that um, currently the National Register nationally only has nine properties that are significant to the LGBT civil rights struggle. Um, You may be familiar with Stonewall, which was just listed as a national monument. That's one of the properties that's on the National Register. And there are a number of properties like that in Colorado that we feel like would be worthy of that recognition and have that story be told. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Astrid Liverman is with the state's Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation. She's helping lead History Colorado's Diversity Heritage Project. You can help identify Colorado's underrepresented historical sites. History Colorado has an online form to nominate places. Just ahead, the early weapons of Western Colorado from the six-shooter to the atlatl. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You can tell a lot about a culture from the weapons it uses, how it defended itself, hunted for food. The Museum of the West in Grand Junction has put together a show that goes way, way back to when the region's earliest inhabitants threw a dart that could pierce the thick hide of a mammoth. Later came a spear that Spanish explorers used to pull enemies from their horses. And then, of course, guns. Curator David Bailey spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner from CPR Studio in Grand Junction earlier this year. Welcome to the program, David. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Why weapons? Do they say something about our Colorado history? I suppose that dinosaur bones or pottery shirts don't. They do. I think, you know, they're kind of markers in time and technology. And it proves how adaptable we are as a species to whatever environment we're up against. 
Well, many of the weapons in this exhibit are guns. They came from a single collector. I understand the oldest dates to the 1750s, and some of the newest guns belonged to modern-day sheriffs. Uh, But there are some blank spaces in that section in particular. What happened to those sheriff's weapons? Well, we had a robbery in October where somebody broke in, and uh, the one thing you can't defend against in a museum is bash and run. So they broke the glass. Luckily, they were arrested, and we'll be getting the guns back here shortly. So Did this happen during business hours? It was right after closing. They um, they broke in, and um, luckily, they were caught right away, and uh, the, somebody, I guess, informed on them, and they found the guns, and they're in perfect condition. So Everyone was safe. Right. I'm glad. Uh, you have a lot of guns, as we said, and many of them were used by infamous bandits and gangsters, thinking of the one owned by Kid Curry and uh, Diamond Jack Altieri. Uh, what are some of the stories behind those weapons? What's the what's the best one you love to tell? Um, one of the best ones with Diamond Jack, he uh, had a little resort outside of Glenwood Springs called the Sweetwater Resort. Friend of Al Capone and an enforcer. So they'd actually cool out there if they were in trouble in Chicago and hide out in this little resort with a small lake. Hmm. But uh, the trouble with Diamond Jack, he's very generous in town buying you know presents for the kids at Christmas. But when he got drunk, he had a terrible temper. So he shot up the Hotel Denver in Glenwood Springs and wounded three bystanders. Um, the sheriff at some time would tell him to calm down. And at one time, it actually punched him out. But he, in this case, he had to arrest him and threaten him with uh, incarceration or to leave the state. And he moved back to Chicago. But before he did, he told the sheriff to meet him down by the river and uh, the sheriff was a little intimidated, knowing this guy was an enforcer for Al Capone. Yeah. So they got down to the river, and he handed him this brand-new 1878 Colt Lightning pistol and said, this is for being a brave man, and get, gave it to him. So. Really? And that pistol is on display. It's got a carved kind of steer on the handles, and, you know, it's all uh, nickel-plated, a beautiful gun. And this resort, uh, where they'd kind of lay low near Glenwood Springs, it was called Sweetwater Lake Resort. Yeah, it was, yeah, and it's still there. I mean, it's a, a just a small little resort. It has, you know, just a tiny lake. But he loved the West. Um, Diamond Jack was enamored with Tom Mix, and he wore a 10-gallon hat. We actually in the museum have a picture of him with the uh, 10-gallon hat on. And he was enamored with, you know, being a cowboy. And that's why he gave him that old-time, you know, 1878 pistol, because it reminded him of the as we call it, the West that never was, you know, the Hollywood West. So. <laughs> so, that's what we call the museum business. Many of the guns used by farmers and ranchers, as well as gunslingers and bandits, have pieces of the grips broken off. They do, and you didn't, didn't have a hammer handy. They'd use their pistol to hammer in the nails for the wanted poster. So we have a lot of the butt end of the gun is actually damaged, and including uh, our, one of our tragic guns in the on exhibit is... Jack Watson. He was a Confederate soldier, outlaw, lawman, Gunnison County, and a Texas Ranger. But he was also a drunk. So he was in Price, Utah, hanging out. He's trying to infiltrate a cattle rustling gang, but unfortunately got drunk and left his uh, holster and pistol on the back of the bar still, went outside and was ambushed and killed, tried to crawl back in and get the gun. And uh, we have that gun on display now. And it, it kind of reminds people of, you know, you could be everything in the West. One day you could be a lawman, and then the next day you could be an outlaw. It was, you know, the same set of skills. Usually a good talker and somebody good with a gun. So sometimes 
the outlaws became lawmen temporarily and the other way around. So very, very interesting times. Oh, and a time when you used your gun for more than just shooting, but as a hammer as well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about an exhibit at the Museum of the West in Grand Junction that essentially tells the story of Western Colorado through the history of weapons used there. And I'd like to go to the time before guns. The oldest weapon in this exhibit, a recreation of a 10,000-year-old atlatl, was one of the more ingenious ancient weapons, replaced, I guess, by bows and arrows. What is an atlatl and and why was it short-lived? You know, it was a long-range weapon. It basically, you had a little platform. You put a dart on it. It was about four to six feet long. Mm-hmm. And then you threw it, kind of like you do a tennis racket or, you know, those fetch balls with the tennis balls oh, that yeah. people throw down. Same kind of principle. You just go straight forward. But that dart with that increased leverage travels about 93 miles an hour. So it would go through the tough hide of a mammoth, you know, about inch, inch and a half thick skin. So... Very effective weapon at long range. Yeah. You also have a spontoon and a halberd in this exhibit. They were mainly used by the Spaniards, I understand, against natives they met in the area. Uh, You call the halberd in particular a killing machine. What is a halberd? Halberd's basically a long, it's a long pole with a, it has three features. You know, a spear, an axe face, and then that little hook. So it's actually three weapons. You could, you know, spear someone or attack them with the hatchet part or with the hook, pull them off their horse. And obviously a dismounted enemy is a distinct advantage for um, mounted cavalry. But the point was not just to get them off their horse. It would have been to kill them too. Right, or yeah. capture them. And so it it was a pretty effective weapon. I, I've heard a story from the Mexican-American War that a Mexican soldier trained with the halberd actually – killed 16 Americans armed with rifles and pistols, uh, just riding through the group. What's a spontoon? A spontoon is basically a spear, but it was sharpened on both sides. It's kind of um, heart-shaped. And so even if you're off your horse, you could use it to keep uh, someone at bay. And uh, pretty long weapon, about six feet long, and it had this really super sharp edge, so you could swing it back and forth, too, and... Uh, pretty effective uh, either on the horse or on the ground. The Spanish used cannons in the 1700s as they fought the French and the natives for control of land in what's now Colorado. Uh, You have two cannons from this time in the exhibit. One was found in Aspen. Uh, It originally came from Asia, though. What would the Spanish have used the cannon in Aspen for? (laughs) Or, Or why were they using a cannon from Asia, for that matter? Um, they, you know, Southeast Asia would provide, they'd cast cannons, and they were almost like a defense contractor back then. Oh. The other cannon we have was actually um, cast in Santa Fe. And basically, they were anti-personnel small cannons for someone to trying to board your ship. You could fire the cannon. But they adapted them. They brought the cannons inland and well, would use a mesquite stump and then put a hole in it put the cannon in, and it had a stick in the back, and it's called a swivel cannon, so they could use it as a defensive weapon. But having read some of the Spanish uh, diaries, they say, you know, it made a lot of noise, scared people away, but <laughs> didn't really do anything <laughs> because it had very ineffective range, probably 50 feet. So, it, they, you know, they would put rocks in it, you know, hobnails, whatever. It's kind of like a this huge shotgun, basically, but it wasn't very effective at very long ranges. One of the most unusual weapons in this exhibit, a revolving barrel Colt rifle, was a weapon commissioned by the military, but I guess it turned out to be a dud. 
and it could actually do more yeah. damage to the user's face than to the enemy target. It did. It you know it was amazing at for its time. It was basically an overgrown revolving pistol, and it was a percussion which had a little cap that ignited the chamber with the powder and a ball in it. Okay. But it revolved so they could fire five shots. But trouble is, uh, sometimes the powder ignited all of them at the same time. So even when they're holding the rifle, they don't hold it normally like you normally would grabbing the forest stock. They put their hands behind the cylinder, afraid that it might blow up. And the Army found that, you know, it was a complicated device and would break down, especially during the Civil War. And uh, the Army originally paid $44 per unit and sold them for $0.44 cents per unit after the war. So mm. they weren't too happy with it. Yeah, that was a loss. I guess they were replaced by a Winchester. Right, you know the Winchesters was such were such a superior design um, compared to the revolving rifle. Although you know, for its time, it was you know the first multi-shot rifle, so it was used effectively until it started breaking down. So another weapon that didn't work so well was a Springfield carbine rifle. It was used by General George Custer's soldiers after the Battle of the Little Bighorn in Montana. Soldiers' bodies were found with fingers in the triggers of these rifles, and the rifles were jammed. That battle, of course, was a huge victory for the Lakota, Arapaho, and Northern Cheyenne who were fighting the colonists. How how much did those ill-conceived rifles contribute to the carnage? I think a lot. I mean, ammo at the time was copper, so the... They would jam, so they, a lot of the soldiers were trying to get the jam cartridge out. Mm. And, you know, they were a single shot, whereas the Lakotas... Um, like Chief Gall, and we're using uh, Henry repeating rifles, so they had a distinct advantage. And the you know, the Springfield trapdoors were used again in a big battle in uh, Colorado, the Battle of Mill Creek, a few years later. Same scenario, the Utes had the uh, cavalry pinned down, they were using Springfield trapdoors, and the Utes had Henry repeating rifles. The Utes were always the first. They are, To keep your advantage, they would always get the most technologically advanced gun at the time, and so being a warrior culture, they immediately got the Henrys, and so they had the upper hand until the cavalry was relieved by another unit. Did they rely solely on guns, or could they shoot arrows too? No, they could shoot arrows, and um, and a lot of people think, well, if you have a gun, why would you need a bow and arrow? Because bow and arrows are very stealthy. They don't make noise, and once you fire mm-hmm. a gun, people know where you're at. And a Ute warrior, a really high-trained warrior on horseback, could fire about seven arrows a minute, which is deadly fire from a mounted warrior. So, um, yeah, and I, we have pictures in the exhibit up to 1878 of uh, a Ute warrior hunting with his dog, and he has a picture with the bow and arrows, not stone-tipped, but metal-tipped. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you. David Bailey is the curator at the Museum of Western Colorado, where an exhibit of weapons spans 11,000 years in the West. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Summer is mosquito season in Colorado. Illnesses and the headlines like Zika shine a spotlight on infectious disease. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, the ways people change the environment adds a wild card. Ken Summers was strong and athletic, a runner. Now the 62-year-old former pastor and former Republican state lawmaker needs crutches to get around. I'd probably rather have, have an opportunity to win the financial lottery instead of the health care crisis lottery because it certainly does show how brief life can be. Three years ago, the Fort Collins resident had a high fever, weakness, and severe headache. 
He was diagnosed with a serious, sometimes deadly, brain virus. They finally determined that I had encephalitis caused by West Nile virus, and then additionally it diagnosed me with meningitis. Most people with West Nile don't get very sick, but a small number like Summers do. He was hospitalized for five months, lost 40 pounds, and nearly died. To me, that was quite the enigma. I didn't remember mosquitoes being bad. I didn't remember being bitten. Mosquitoes are the transmitters, also called vectors, of the West Nile virus. Climate change could have an impact globally on insects that carry some very serious diseases, like dengue fever, chikungunya, malaria, and the one that may be a game changer in terms of public interest, Zika. It seems that there's been a lot more interest since the emergence of Zika in the Americas. That's Mary Hayden, a research scientist with the National Center for Atmospheric Research. She co-authored part of a recent study on climate change vulnerability in Colorado. Hayden says human health and climate are often related, but it's complicated. We know that climate plays a critical role in the developmental stages of the mosquitoes. Climate change isn't the only factor, but Hayden says rising temperatures could help spread some diseases because the mosquitoes that carry them survive in more places. There's so many other factors that come into play. A lot of it has to do with living in an interconnected world. Mike Antolin agrees. He's a CSU biology professor who studied infectious diseases in wildlife. He says international travelers need to be aware of diseases like Zika, even though the mosquito that carries it doesn't live naturally in Colorado. I don't think we're going to have Zika coming as far west, north, or in high altitude is where we are here. But Antolin says Colorado is seeing higher nighttime lows and longer warm seasons. Those changes could affect the global distribution of infectious diseases and species that carry them. And it's not only insects like mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. He says Colorado's robins, a host for the West Nile virus, no longer migrate. All these factors can affect human health, but Antolin says it's not clear how. It means that some of the predictability that we may have had about expecting when, when disease risk occurs goes out the window. In a lab in Denver, a man named Doc Weissman adds another perspective. There's a lot more going on out there in the world than just climate change. Weissman is the chief entomologist at Colorado Mosquito Control. It's a private company that works with towns and counties to track mosquitoes and control breeding. He says humans are giving the insects that transmit infectious disease an advantage by making intentional changes to our environment. There's a lot of effects other than climate change. Habitat destruction, habitat alteration is a huge one. Weissman shows a pair of photos from an original building on the CU campus. In the 1800s, it was surrounded by prairie. Today, it's in the midst of a vast urban forest. He says all over the state, humans have changed the environment and made life a lot easier for mosquitoes. Now you've got retention ponds, detention ponds, gravel quarries that are filled with water instead of dirt. You've got landscaping that requires a lot of water. You've got shady trees. He says people can reduce the population of disease-transmitting insects around their homes by draining standing water in things like old tires or watering cans, even replacing grass lawns with less thirsty plants. Mary Hayden, the Climate Report author, says in a warming world, it'll be important for people to know when it's a bad mosquito season in their town. One can only hope that people will start to pay more attention to these linkages. West Nile survivor Ken Summers says his illness made him more aware of the risks of infectious disease. 
He's written a book about his fight. It's a whole new world, a whole new normal for me that's changed my life and has created a great deal of adjustment. Summer's book outlines the lessons he learned fighting the life-threatening virus. One lesson, he says, is practical. Wear bug repellent. I'm John Daly, CPR News. You can find a link to John's story and others by CPR's newsroom on our website, cprnews.org. Up next, a 15-year-old from Pueblo who's just about finished her second novel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. 15-year-old Annika Clark says she's stuck in her imagination, which isn't a bad place to be when you're trying to write 50,000 words a month. Last December, Clark, who lives in Pueblo, plumbed that imagination and won a gold medal in the National Scholastic Arts and Writing Awards contest. Her winning story? Too Close to the Stars. It's the second novel for Clark, who also has a blog, Embracing Quirky, The Wonderings and Musings of a Bookish Teen. Annika, welcome to the program. Hi. So getting stuck in my imagination, what does that mean exactly? Um, I guess I'm always somewhere else. I like to make things up in my head. <laughs> so is that the daydreaming during the day? or? Yes, lots of daydreaming. So your idea to write Too Close to the Stars developed out of the National Novel Writing Month, or NaNoWriMo for short. Uh, tell me about NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo is an online organization that you can sign up for, and they help you keep track of the words that you write in November, and you're supposed to write 1,667 words a day, and that is what I use to finish the words of my novel in a month. What is it actually like writing that many words uh, per day for a month? Uh, that's roughly seven pages of text a day. It's it's fun the first week, and then the second week it's aggravating, and then the next two weeks it's excruciating, and then on the last day it, it's really overwhelming, and you realize that 50,000 words is done, and you did it in a month. Your novel, Too Close to the Stars, uh, centers around Amelia Stort Mondi and her siblings, but when you began writing for NaNoWriMo, you actually had another story in mind, right? What was that about? The story was a fantasy novel about the siblings and how they went back into a book in time, and it was an adventure for them. But that's not what actually came out at the end of this. You actually turned to a different no. story. Talk, talk about that. Well, when I was writing 50,000 words, you get, you get kind of desperate <laughs> for your words every day. So you're coming up with different things, and it's kind of confusing. So I wanted to start doing this background story for them, and that ended up being more interesting. So I went into that, and it all kind of started to blend together. And that's where Amelia came to be. Yes. What is her story? She is a teenager who lives in a family with an abusive stepfather and an absent mother. And most of the novel is about her taking care of herself and her siblings and through all the turmoil. And they're 13-year-old twin siblings. Mm-hmm. And is yes. she, she's a writer as well. Yes, she is a writer later in the book. So she actually goes into writing because she's in this, this abusive situation with her father. Yes, it's like an escape. 
And the story is told on two timelines. The, the past timeline tells Amelia's story from junior year back to when she was five years old, including the return of her stepfather between eighth grade and high school. And then there's this present timeline of the novel, which follows the events that take place after her English teacher sends Amelia's novel to a publisher. And she's offered a book deal and a movie adaptation is being produced. And she's got to deal with this contrast between her miserable home life, like you said, and, and the sudden fame from her novel. Would you mind reading a passage from, from your story? Of course. Okay. Here it goes. Junior year. She would stand outside with her coat unbuttoned and her hair down. She was hot, I mean, she was sweaty and her hair was turning gray at the roots. I made spaghetti for dinner and left the door propped open to the porch so I could inhale the second-hand wisps of smoke from Mom's cigarette. While the water boiled, I sat on the tiles of the kitchen. My legs didn't quite fit between the cabinets. I hugged them to my chest, waiting for my older brother to come home, listening for the door to slam or the window to open in the dark. But Victor never came, just like I thought he wouldn't. While our forks and spoons hit the plates and the twins... Robin and John twirled their spaghetti. I imagined all the places my brother could be instead of sitting here with us. One, he could be with the other seniors of Lowell High School, smoking weed and listening to awful 70s rock music. He would be in the corner with a hood over his head, tapping his foot or twitching his leg, masked and cloaked in smoke. Two, he could be with some outcast group in a basement, playing board games, watching geeky movies. He would play along, but he would soon get bored. He would be a daredevil and tell everyone they were playing spin the bottle. Victor was smart and desperate and would get the bottle to spin on any guy he wanted. And then he would kiss him. And the other would say it was a secret. And everyone would agree. And then Victor would leave. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and that was Annika Clark reading from her new book, Too Close to the Stars, which won a gold medal in the Scholastic Arts and Writing Contest. And Annika, that, those are some pretty deep topics that you write about in this novel. Uh, you came from a military family and have lived in Kansas, Minnesota, Illinois, California, Pennsylvania, Vermont, and here in Colorado. Has moving so much and seeing so much of the country uh, made it easier for you to uh, get stuck in your imagination, like you mentioned earlier? Yes, of course, because it's when you move a lot, you have to experience so many different things and you see all the different stories wherever you go. And that's really inspiring for me. And you attend the online Colorado Connections Academy. Uh, wouldn't it help the creative process to be interacting with other students every day in person? I think what really helps my creative process is having time for my writing. And when I do online school, I, I can rearrange my schedule to really fit my passions. So, yes, interacting with other people is important, but I can still get that while having the time for my writing that online school gives me. So Too Close to the Stars won a gold medal in the Scholastic Arts in Writing Contest. But 
This actually is your second novel, right? Yes, it is. So, so what was the first one about? The first one I wrote the year before. I wrote Too Close to the Stars, and that first one was a spy novel about young adults who are spies. And my producer says you don't like to talk about this novel. Why is that? No, I don't because、um, I feel like every day I get better at my writing. So looking back for me on the things I wrote when I was twelve or thirteen, even though that wasn't very long ago, it's still kind of cringy. <laughs> Why is it cringy? Because I feel like I've improved so much, I've had a steep learning curve with my writing. So, do you stick it in the back of a, of a drawer there and then not look at it?、Um, I have it on my computer, and sometimes I see the folder, <laughs> and I think maybe I should look at that, and then I don't. So, you, you feel you're you're a much better writer now. What have you learned between the first novel and this one?、Um, lots of dedication.、Uh-huh. You just need to keep writing to get better. So, if I write every day. I know I'm going to be better than if I just think about it, which is what I used to do. And well, too close to the stars has certainly been well received. There's a chance, at least for the time being, you kind of want to leave it behind. Why is that? I may leave it behind because, you know, I have an imagination, right? And I keep getting these other ideas that I want to go on to. And staying with the one thing is kind of frustrating if I don't love it at the moment. And, and I want to note that the book isn't finished yet, right? No, it's not completely finished. So, how many projects are you working on right now? Right now, I'm working on a new novel, and I'm writing on my blog, and I'm writing poetry most days. And what is the new novel about? The new novel is about a girl who lives in Arizona with her grandparents in an RV, and she meets a kid who moves in next door. And he claims that he can make miracles. So that one's more interesting to me than the last one I wrote. And so, are all of these characters from all of these novels? Are they living in your head right now? Do 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 they pop up every now and then? Maybe when you're at the grocery store, or or maybe、uh, you know working on an assignment at school. Yes, whatever I'm whatever I'm writing at the moment is always in my head. I'm always jotting down notes on my phone. As you get older. Do you worry that you're going to possibly lose that imagination, that 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 desire to learn and、uh, about you know things inside your head and put them down in pieces of paper? Is that something that you feel may be lost? No, I don't think so. Hopefully not. <laughs> I'll try not to grow up. <laughs> try not to grow up. What do you mean? I will just try to keep the same imagination I have now. Well, definitely sounds like you have a plan, Annika. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Annika Clark of Pueblo is the 15-year-old author of Too Close to the Stars, which won a gold medal at the National Scholastic Arts and Writing Awards contest. You can find an excerpt at CPR.org. When the outfit first visited the CPR Performance Studio in 2013, they were a fairly young Denver rock band with just a few songs. The band has evolved since and now has a full-length album out on the local Hot Congress label. They'll also be performing at the Underground Music Showcase in Denver later this month. From their self-titled debut album, here's the song "Ne'er Do Well." Upstairs, all the drugs. 
ne'er-do-well from the Denver rock band The Outfit. And that's our show. Thanks to audio engineer Michael Hughes, my director Andrea Dukakis, and producers Rachel Estabrook, Anthony Cotton, and Stephanie Wolf. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.